The Education Channel supports individual educational goals and encourages creativity for all. Visit uctv.tv slash education. My name is Saras Ramanathan. I am one of the co-chairs along with Neeti Parikh of this uh, Osher Mini Medical School presentation. We are super excited to welcome all of you to tonight's presentation of glaucoma or under pressure, understanding glaucoma disease treatment and research on the horizon. We are super lucky to have three of our terrific glaucoma specialists here at UCSF. Uh, we'll start out with Dr. Sriranjani Padmanabhan. She is our medical director at San Francisco General Hospital and one of our awesome glaucoma specialists. Uh, she'll be joined by Kathy Sun and Yvonne O, oh, whom you'll meet later in the in the webinar. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Padmanabhan. So thank you so much and welcome. Uh, this is Under Pressure. We'll be talking about um, glaucoma and a multifaceted approach. Uh, glaucoma diagnosis, treatment, and research. Um, this is going to be given by um, myself and my colleagues from the UCSF Glaucoma faculty. So I think we should just get started by um, understanding exactly what glaucoma is and how your eye doctor um, comes to the diagnosis. So glaucoma is actually more than just one disease. It's an umbrella term for many different diseases and syndromes that have a final common pathway and that is the progressive loss and thinning of the optic nerve um, over the course of time. Sometimes that is over the course of hours and days um, in really um, urgent situations, but most commonly it's over the course of years and decades. So in to order to understand the loss of the optic nerve, we really have to get into some of the nitty gritty of the anatomy of the back of the eye. Um, each of us were born with one optic nerve in each eye. Uh, and the optic nerve is basically an extension of the delicate cells in the back of the eye that form the retina or the light sensing portion of the eye. And so that final layer of cells here uh, is called the ganglion cell layer, the retinal ganglion cell layer. And from these cells extend a neural tissue called axons and altogether those axons form the optic nerve. The optic nerve then sends all those axons uh, back into the brain where it connects with other types of tissues and eventually finds its way into the back of the brain called the occipital lobes. The occipital lobes then take that information and they use it to form a picture. And that picture is what we call vision. And so you can see how critical those ganglion cells and that optic nerve is for, for us to see. Without them, that connection between the eye and the brain is lost and the ability to see is then compromised. So when we look in the back of an eye, and here's a representative color photo of the back of an eye. In this case, we're looking at the back of a normal right eye. We can see the retina and just the very beginning of the optic nerve. We can't see all of the cells um, that form the retina with our naked eye. Sometimes we get a little lucky and we can see those axons heading towards the optic nerve, but we can't see the actual optic nerve itself. Um, and I always tell my patients that the optic nerve should look like the tire of a big truck. It should have a nice thick tissue, um, a rim, a, a rim of tissue, and a little hole in the middle, like the tire of a big truck or maybe like a juicy donut. And so now I want to show you this uh, drawing of the optic nerve as it might change over the course of time in the setting of glaucoma. So you can see here in this first picture that the optic nerve looks like the tire of a big truck. But then as time goes on, 
it progresses to look maybe more like a motorcycle tire and then eventually like a bicycle tire and then eventually it's almost nothing at all um you can sort of see that as the rim is getting thinner that hole is getting larger and what does it mean it means the patient is losing their axons um and they're losing the cells that actually the axons come off of as well the process is again very slow over the course of years and the reason why this is a schematic, honestly, is because we don't usually give it a chance to get this bad. And so one way that we can diagnose glaucoma is to see evidence of this progression over time. Another way that we can diagnose glaucoma is the visual field. And so let me tell you a little bit about that. So in the visual field test, this is a test that tests not how, what the eye looks like to us, but it tests what the vision looks like to the patient, right? It's a measure of function and not so much the anatomy or the structure. So in the visual field test, the patient positions their head in the center of what looks like a gigantic bowl, and they press on a button every time they see a light. The lights are typically delivered outside of the patient's central vision or in the, or in the periphery of their vision. And the reason for this, the reason why this is important in glaucoma is because the periphery of the vision is typically what is lost first in glaucoma. So here's an example of what the physician sees um, as the results of the visual field test. On the left side here is an example of the, a normal visual field. You can see how there's a lot of various data on here that's important um, for the physician to determine how good the test is. And then compare that to what it might look like in a patient who does have glaucoma on the right side of your screen. And you can see some of the obvious differences here. In the right side, there's this big area that's black and those are areas that the patient couldn't see, um, that they didn't respond when the light was shining uh, in their field of vision. So while this was a pretty obvious example of a difference between a normal and an abnormal visual field, it's really the physician's job to discern if there is progression of disease or if there's glaucoma, even when the visual fields are not so obviously different. And that is where some of the um, quandaries and diagnosis come into play. Putting this together, what I wanted to show you was how, when the optic nerve changes, we often see a corresponding change in the visual field as well. So in this top photograph from a research study, you can see here a normal optic nerve and a normal visual field. This little black spot that you see here is what we call the physiologic blind spot. That's normal. Everyone's got one of those. And that's where the, that's corresponds to the location of the optic nerve because where there is optic nerve, uh, there are no light sensing cells over it. In this next picture, you can see how the nerve is a little bit more like that motorcycle tire. It's a little bit thinner around the edges, a little bit bigger that hole. And you, now you have a blind spot that correlates to where we've lost the retinal ganglion cells and those axons that form the optic nerve. Um, it's a mirror. You, you lose the cells up top of the nerve, you end up losing the vision on the bottom of your visual field. And then if when the glaucoma gets really severe and the nerve loss is more extensive, then correspondingly, you'll see more extensive visual field loss. So whatever territory of vision was supplied by those nerves and those axons, you should see a correlating loss in the visual field. Now, that being said, the optic nerve is quite redundant. Thankfully, we've all been, I suppose, blessed with a lot of optic nerve. Um, and that being, so what that really means is the more op, we have to lose a fair amount of the optic nerve before it starts to manifest in the vision. So the visual field is really good at telling us when we have had glaucomatous visual field loss, when the disease is already moderate or severe. And in order to detect glaucoma when it's really early, we have the OCT. 
So this is an example of what the physician might see in an OCT report. Um, the OCT has changed quite a bit since 2010, but um, the reporting mechanism is somewhat familiar to what you might see in our, in our clinics. And the OCT stands for optical coherence tomography, which like a traditional CT, which stands for computed tomography, it does give you a cross-sectional cross imaging of tissue, but instead of using radiation, it uses light. So it's quite safe. Um, and it gives us very detailed information about how thick the optic nerve is, how thick the tissue um, that comprises the optic nerve is, how thick the layer of ganglion cells is in the back of the eye. And then very importantly, it's actually able to compare the results it gets from the patient to a database of patients who it knows don't have glaucoma and who are roughly the same age um, and gender. And so getting this study is a routine part of glaucoma practice now. Um, and it is much better detecting the very, very, very small changes at the level of the micron um, in the optic nerve and is therefore able to detect glaucoma when there's still a redundancy of the optic nerve before we've gotten to the point where we've lost enough nerve to show up on the visual field. Um, and so it's really revolutionized the way that we're able to diagnose glaucoma early. So with a combination of a careful exam, a history, the OCT in the visual field, and oftentimes, um, with some time, the physician can help the patient come to, a come to a diagnosis of glaucoma. That being said, in addition to being able to decide whether or not there is actual optic nerve damage and therefore glaucoma, we can't really say, again, that someone has glaucoma until we see optic nerve damage. We also have to determine what type of glaucoma that patient has. You might remember that I mentioned that there is a large amount of diseases and syndromes that eventually can lead to glaucoma. And a list of all those conditions is probably too long um, to talk about here, but very broadly, we can think of glaucoma as being in two major categories. We have what we call open angle glaucoma, and then we have angle closure glaucoma or angle closure uh, or um, closed angle glaucoma. So in order to understand those categories, we very briefly have to know a little bit about the alveolar system of the eye and the drainage canals of the eye. So the eye you can think of as having two large compartments. There's a big back compartment that we're not really gonna talk about much, um, but suffice it to say that the very back compartment has the retina. Then there is the very front compartment, which is comprised of the cornea. That's where people put their contact lenses. A big space called the anterior chamber filled, filled with fluid. And then the iris, which is the part of the eye that provides you with color blue eyes or brown eyes. It's the part that opens and closes in response to light. Just behind the iris is a bundle of tissue that produces the internal fluid of the eye called the aqueous humor. That aqueous humor is produced in the back part of the eye, eventually makes its way around the pupil and percolates in the speak chamber and where it eventually drains into the angle. Where the iris, the cornea and the sclera meet is where the angle is. And in that angle is a series of sieve-like networks, what I like to call, um, or what is known as the trabecular meshwork. And I frequently refer to it in my clinic as a colander or a sieve, because it essentially um, filters out the aqueous humor as it eventually exits the eye and finds its way to the larger canals downstream. Um, you can sort of think of it as like a coffee filter. And so in open angle glaucoma, when we look at the angle, it looks normal to our eyes. We can't see anything particularly wrong with it but we just surmise that there's something about that angle, maybe it's microscopic, um, that's providing resistance to flow. So then the eye is making fluid, but it's not quite draining it at the same rate that it's supposed to be make, that it's supposed to. And as a result, the fluid builds up in the eye and the pressure is increased. And that's sort of a, um, I think a very basic way of understanding um, primary open angle glaucoma. 
The anatomy is normal, but the function is not. In angle closure glaucoma, there is usually an obvious abnormality of the outflow system of that trabecular meshwork. Typically, there's something occluding it, there's something preventing the fluid from ever reaching the TM in the first place. Here's an example of what we look at, how we see angles in clinic. This is via a exam technique called gonioscopy. Um, on the left side of your screen, you can see an example of what we call an open angle. And this little uh, light brown structure right here, that's just the beginning of that trabecular meshwork of that coffee filter that the aqueous humor flows through and eventually is drained out of. On the right side is a very different picture of an eye with angle closure. And you can see here just a sliver of that trabecular meshwork, but it's largely covered and scarred over by the iris. In angle closure, um, the TM may be completely or partially scarred over. And as a result, the fluid is not able to access the, the drainage spaces and the pressure rises. So in addition to identifying whether there is glaucoma and what type of glaucoma the patient has, the physician's responsibility is also to assess whether the patient has risk factors for glaucoma, which may affect their rate of progression or whether they develop glaucoma at all. And so, again, the risk factors for glaucoma are, are many, and here are just some of the most common. Um, these are some that you might elicit in a careful history on the left side, patient's age, whether they have a family history, if they have any ocular history, um, including other ocular diseases, and then in certain types of glaucoma, the migraine or the blood pressure. And then on the, on the uh, right side, you'll see some um, exam things that may affect someone's risk for developing glaucoma. They're elevated, an elevated eye pressure, um, how thick the cornea is, whether their optic nerve already appears a little thin, or whether there's an asymmetry between the optic nerve appearance um, among the two eyes. I think it's important to note that I've made it 13 minutes without mentioning the pressure. Um, and I wanted to really drive home the fact that glaucoma is really not about having a high eye pressure. Glaucoma is so many things. Having a high eye pressure is one of the risk factors. But out of all these risk factors, it's one of the only ones that we can actually modify, which is why we make such a big deal out of it um, when patients come to the eye clinic. And so even if it's normal um, and the patient carries a diagnosis of glaucoma, which happens about 30% of the time, um, lowering the eye pressure gives us the most preventative bang for our buck um, or most, most treating bang for our buck um, when it comes to disease progression or disease, or disease prevention. And so with respect to how to, how to lower that pressure, uh, I'm going to turn over the talk now to my colleague, um, Dr. Kathy Sun. She's an assistant professor of um, ophthalmology here at UCSF, and she will talk a little bit more about the treatment and prevention of glaucoma. Thank you for joining us this evening. So I'm gonna be talking about some of the common treatments that we use for glaucoma. So I'll go over what the goal of glaucoma treatment is, and we'll touch base on some of the common treatment modalities, which include medications, lasers, and surgery. So as my colleague mentioned, the goal of glaucoma treatment is to lower the eye pressure. And I'll review um, how we can do so through a schematic. So if we think of the eye as a ball, um, there's the amount of fluid that's produced in the eye and the amount of fluid that the eye drains. So if we decrease the amount of fluid that's produced, but keep the amount of fluid that drains the same, then we can decrease the eye pressure. Similarly, if we keep the amount of fluid that the eye produces the same and increase the amount of fluid that drains out, then that can also decrease the eye pressure. And so these are the two mechanisms of how most of our treatments work. 
So now we'll take a look and review some of the eye structures um, that my colleague mentioned as well. So again, this is um, when we look at the eye from the front and this is the iris, the colored part of the eye. And this is a side view of the eye where we see the cornea, the clear part of the eye, the iris, the colored part and the lens. And so the fluid is produced behind the iris and a part of the body called the ciliary body or the ciliary muscle. And this goes 360 degrees around the eye and it's drained in the angle um, through the trabecular meshwork. And so we'll take a closer look. And so again, the ciliary body produces the fluid and it drains out through this sieve-like meshwork that we call the trabecular meshwork. So medications are one of the most common, um, most common treatments that we use and usually what we start with. When we talk about medications, we are usually referring to eye drops. Um, and they work, uh, like I described, by either decreasing the fluid production from the eye and or increasing the fluid drainage from the eye. And the ultimate goal is to lower the eye pressure. Each class of medication has a different mechanism of action. And the caps of each um, bottle within a class usually have the same color. And that helps um, it to make it easy to identify. And so these are some of the common drops that we prescribe. And you can see that the caps have different colors. And so you're usually started on one medication in a class, and there are several medications within each class. If you're unable to tolerate one medication, your doctor may switch you to an alternative in the same class. If you need more eye pressure control, then your doctor may need to add a new medication class. So these are some eye drops that are um, part of a class that we usually start patients on. And each medication has two names. There is the generic name or the chemical name of a drug and the brand name, which is given by the company and it's usually more catchy. And so as you see here, um, all of these drops have a teal cap. So this is usually one that we start people on since it's just dosed at night and this is latanoprost or Zalatan. There are also combination drops where um, one bottle has two different classes of medications combined. And COSOPT is one of the most common ones that we use. Um, the brand name is COSOPT and the generic name is Dorzolamide Timolol. Um, some people can get an allergic reaction to the medication. And based on your symptoms and the appearance of your eye, your doctor will determine if it's an allergic reaction to the main medication ingredient or to the preservatives. So preservatives are used in eye drops that come in a bottle to help maintain an antimicrobial environment. And there are different types of preservatives that can be used in different medications. And there are also preservative-free medications. Um, so these are um, single-use containers that can be recapped, but should usually be thrown away 24 hours after opening. Since there are no preservatives in there, um, they're at increased risk of contamination and causing an infection. So Zyoptan is a preservative-free form um, in the same class as the teal medications that I showed you. And so the benefit is that they're often better tolerated for those with very dry eyes or who have allergy to preservatives. I guess the one question is why isn't everyone put on them? There are some downsides. They're often expensive. 
Um, latanoprost, the teal bottle that I showed you, um, can usually cost $20, whereas Ioptan can cost closer to $200. To get approval from your insurance company to receive a reduction in the cost, um, your doctor can do that, and we would need to justify it for and provide a reason why you need to be on preservative-free medication. Another downside is that these vials or containers can be difficult to handle since they're smaller. So next, I wanna review some practical tips on how to use eye drops. So first thing is to wash your hands before you touch your eye or your eye bottle. And make sure that you examine the bottle to make sure it isn't expired. Unopened bottles can usually be kept for about a year or until the expiration date. And open bottles should usually be kept for only three months. For preservative-free drops, these should usually be thrown away after 24 hours. And then certain bottles might need to be shaken if the liquid is a suspension and looks milky. And so brinzolamide or azopt is a glaucoma medication that comes in a suspension and should be shaken each time. Next, you wanna sit down, tilt your head back and look up at the ceiling. Try to focus on a point to help decrease um, your need to blink. And then you wanna pull your lower eyelid away with your index finger to form a pocket and then gently squeeze the bottle so the eye drop falls in the pocket. And most importantly, make sure that the tip does not hit your eye since doing so could cause a scratch on the surface. And then make sure that the tip stays sterile the whole time. Um, next, you wanna close your eyes gently, um, no need to squeeze them shut tightly and wait about two to three minutes. In some cases, um, your doctor may recommend applying gentle pressure to your tear ducts and that's where your eyelid meets the nose for two to three minutes with your eyes closed. And so this is called nasal lacrimal occlusion and it helps to decrease the amount of medication that goes into the back of your throat and is absorbed into your bloodstream. So we have tear ducts that drain fluid from the eye into the back of the throat. And so um, by applying pressure, we're pushing more on the bridge of the nose and make sure you're not putting any pressure on your eye. And if your doctor wants um, you to do this, they'll usually show you to make sure you're in the right place and applying the right amount of pressure. Usually this is recommended for those who have adverse effects or allergies to drops to help um, decrease those. Next, you wanna gently wipe away any excess liquid from your skin with a soft tissue or cloth since the uh, medication can be irritating to the skin. And then wait about three to five minutes before putting in another medication in the same eye. And ask for help if you're having trouble. So next I want to um, shift gears and talk about um, two of the most common lasers that we use for angled closure glaucoma and open angled glaucoma. So um, just a reminder, angle closure glaucoma is where the angle where the fluid drains out is closed in many or all areas. And when fluid can't drain out, this will lead to increased eye pressure that can lead to optic nerve damage and vision loss. And so this can occur acutely and we call that an angle closure attack or it can occur slowly. And there are also precursor forms of the disease where the angle is narrow, but not fully close, um, and the eye pressure is not high yet. And laser is most helpful after an acute angle closure attack or for these precursor forms. And so um, the laser that we perform is called a laser peripheral iridotomy or LPI. 
we create a tiny hole in the outer edge or the periphery of the iris. And this leads to an opening of the angle in most cases. And after the angle is open, then fluid drainage is improved. And we do this in the clinic. So this is the small hole that's made in the periphery of the iris. And this is another photo um, where we use light to transilluminate so we can better see that the hole is open. The risks of an LPI, you can have a temporary elevation in eye pressure. So usually your eye pressure is checked 30 minutes to one hour afterwards. You can have some inflammation, which goes away after a week with anti-inflammatory drops. The closure of the iridotomy can happen in some cases, but it's not common. And in rare cases, you can have some extra visual symptoms like seeing bright lights or halos or glare. There is also laser that we can do for open-angled glaucoma. And open-angled glaucoma is one of the most common forms of glaucoma in the US. And this is where the angle um, looks open, but there is likely some sort of blockage. And this presents with high eye pressure, which leads to optic nerve damage and vision loss. And so we talked about medications, which is a first-line treatment for open-angled glaucoma. And we can also do a laser called selective laser trabeculoplasty. So SLT targets the natural drainage tissue of the eye or the trabecular meshwork, and that helps to improve drainage. So we use very low energy to gently treat the trabecular meshwork, which is here in brown, and that helps it to function more effectively and allow more fluid to drain out. There is no hole or incision made with this laser, and this also takes place in the clinic. So the risks of SLT are very few. Um, similar to an LPI, some people can have a slight increase in eye pressure afterwards, so you're monitored for 30 minutes to an hour after the procedure, and you can have mild inflammation. But this inflammation usually goes away on its own without any eye drops, or in some cases, you may need an anti-inflammatory drop for a few days. The benefit is that it can work just as well as an eye drop in some cases, and this is usually when it's the first treatment. It works about 70 to 80% of the time, and it can last up to three years. And if it works the first time, then it can be repeated more than once. So next I'll talk about some of the types of surgery that we perform for glaucoma. So these include cataract surgery, and this is more common for angle closure glaucoma and milder forms of open angle glaucoma. You can also, there's a class of um, surgery that we call minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. And this is usually for mild to moderate glaucoma. And then we have our major or traditional glaucoma surgery, which is typically reserved for advanced glaucoma. So your doctor takes into consideration a number of things before deciding which surgery they would recommend. And this includes how high your eye pressure is, what your target eye pressure is, how advanced your glaucoma is, if you have other eye conditions or other medical conditions, if you've had previous eye surgeries or lasers, and how you'll do in the post-operative healing period. So for cataract surgery, um, it works well for angle closure glaucoma and its precursors. So the lens or um, the cataract as it matures, it takes up a lot of room. When we take out the lens and place an artificial um, lens implant, that is flat and takes up less room. 
So removing the lens can help open the drainage passageway and actually cure this form of glaucoma for some patients if done early enough. In open angle glaucoma, some patients with mild glaucoma um, can have a eye pressure reduction afterwards, and this might be enough for some time. So minimally invasive glaucoma surgery refers to a group of surgeries where we use microscopic sized devices and smaller incisions to make glaucoma surgery safer. These devices are newer, and one of the trade-offs is in making the surgery safer, they are less effective at lowering eye pressure than our traditional or major glaucoma surgeries. They can be combined with cataract surgery and because they are usually less effective at lowering eye pressure, they're reserved for mild to moderate glaucoma. And so this is a photo just showing some um, devices that are classified as MIDs. Um, this includes the hydrus microscent and the iScent, and these all work to increase drainage. They're implanted into the angle and the trabecular meshwork to improve your natural drainage pathways. Um, there's also the Zen gel stent, and that increases drainage by creating a new path for fluid to flow. And there are other devices too. Um, so our major or traditional glaucoma surgeries they work like the Zen gel stent by creating a new drainage pathway. And that's because your natural drainage pathway is clogged and no longer working. Um, and this is most common with advanced glaucoma when your medications and lasers are not enough anymore. So one of the surgeries that's been around the longest is called a trabeculectomy. And that is where we make a tiny drainage hole in the sclera or the white part of the eye and fluid flows out through the small hole into a small blister-like pocket called a bleb, and that's enclosed in the eye and sits underneath your upper eyelid. And so this is a photo of a healed bleb several months after surgery. And as you can see, um, it's a little bit whiter than the rest of the eye, but otherwise a normal looking eye. Another type of surgery that we commonly do is called a glaucoma drainage implant or a tube shunt. And here we also make a tiny drainage hole in the sclera and then a tube is placed through it. And fluid flows through the tube into the area near the implant in the back of the eye. And so these are some examples of tube shunts. This is called an Ahmed and this is a bar belt and these are named after the inventors. And this is um, a photo or a picture showing an Ahmed implant and it's seated in the back of the eye near the eye muscles and a tube is entered into the eye. And so fluid drains out of this tube um, over the implant and this is all enclosed in the eye and it usually sits underneath your upper eyelid. So in summary, we've reviewed that the goal of glaucoma treatment is to lower eye pressure that eye pressure can be lowered through two ways, um, by decreasing fluid production from the eye and increasing fluid drainage from the eye. We've gone through some medications and um, common types of eye drops and how to safely instill them, some common lasers that are used in open um, angle and angle closure glaucoma, and the types of surgeries that can be performed for glaucoma. Um, hope this was helpful and thank you for joining us. Um, next, I'm going to um, pass it along to my colleague, Dr. Yvonne O, oh, who will be talking about um, research uh, in the horizon in glaucoma. 
Thanks so much. This has been really fantastic. And um, it's been really fun to hear uh, my colleagues, uh, Dr. Pamanabhan and Dr. Sun, speak about um, our understanding of glaucoma. And I know there were a bunch of questions in the Q&A. I think some of them will try to also get in during the live Q&A session. But I was hoping for this very last section that I could um, get you all excited about the research that's on the horizon. As you heard from Dr. Sun, our current treatments are really all centered around lowering eye pressure. But what you heard from Dr. Pamanabhan is that eye pressure is not the only thing driving this disease. So there's a lot of interest in our field to try to improve treatments as well as our ability to diagnose the disease, um, such that we're not just, um, we don't just have lowering eye pressure in our toolbox. So um, I have no financial disclosures. So I thought I would focus on three areas. And this is just a very small um, section of all the exciting research that's going on in glaucoma. But I chose these because I think they're fairly exciting areas of research and can give patients hope about uh, glaucoma treatment. As you probably learned here that glaucoma, there really is no cure for glaucoma. We can manage the disease. We can slow down the progression. I feel like my job for all my patients is to essentially prevent patients from losing um, vision that will impact their quality of life. And we, I think, are can be very successful at that with lowering eye pressure, but we are also interested in trying to figure out ways that we can do better to preserve vision and perhaps one day even restore vision. So the three things I'm going to talk a little bit about are rewiring in the retina. And actually, I'm going to just briefly touch upon that, but I'm going to use that discussion or framework to talk about what we understand about retinal ganglion cells and what they're doing in the retina. We're going to talk a little bit about axon regeneration. And I'm only going to briefly touch upon like a very small um, part of that story. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about stem cells and what might be really down the pipeline, but potentially could um, be very promising. So Dr. Pamanabhan showed you a, a picture of the retina as well. And uh, what I wanted to highlight here was just even at the turn of the century, um, Santiago Ramon y Cajal, he made these seminal drawings. And actually this was part of an art exhibit that went around the United States. Um, and I got to see it when it was at um, NYU. Just these gorgeous drawings um, throughout the brain and the uh, retina. You know, you can think of the retina as really a, a portion of our central nervous system. It's basically, I mean, it's not really part of the brain, but it's in, in some ways it is, has neural circuitry. It has a bunch of neurons. It has all these support cells that are really important, just like the brain does. And these drawings here show you um, the retinal ganglion cells that he was able to see just even these beautiful layers, kind of like the layers of a cake, for example. And there'll be layers where, you know, you can think of um, where the optic nerve cells or the retinal ganglion cells sit, and then the partner cells, which are in this second layer. And then in between what you might think of as the frosting, that's where all the connections um, between the ganglion cells and the um, other neurons, their partner neurons are taking place. And then again, as Dr. Pamanabhan talked about, those ganglion cells project their axons, these long cables, all the way from the retina to the brain. And so of course, these are the cells that um, eventually degenerate and are lost in glaucoma. So this is an image from um, my lab, and it is a picture of a single retinal ganglion cell. 
And what these little balls represent are actually those little connections. The connections are the synapses between the retinal ganglion cells and their partner neurons. And my lab is interested in trying to understand how the um, synapses and those connections, how they're being dismantled in glaucoma, how they're falling apart or breaking apart, and also potentially how they might be rewired in glaucoma. But it's really, you know, when we talk about glaucoma, we often talk about how the retinal ganglion cells are the cells that are degenerating, but it's not just one cell type. The retina is actually, or the retinal ganglion cell population is actually composed of many different cell types. And um, I just want to highlight the fact that um, we're still just understanding it still over the last uh, couple of years, exactly what cell types are potentially more vulnerable in glaucoma and which retinal ganglion cell types might be more resilient. So this is an image of Michael Jordan from the famed Chicago Bulls driving to the basket. And what this figure is sort of demonstrating is how there are different types of retinal ganglion cells that actually respond differently to different visual stimuli. So for example, this particular cell type really responds robustly when there's motion going from the, in this picture, left to right direction. This is a retinal ganglion cell type, for example, that responds more to different gradations um, of light. And so putting that all together, these ganglion cells sit in the retina and they kind of form this beautiful mosaic, each particular type. And then the mosaic sort of overlaps. They all have overlapping mosaics. And that's what actually does some of the visual processing. Now, of course, a lot of visual processing also goes on in the brain. But again, as I mentioned, the retinal ganglion cells are the final output neuron. All the light is collected by the photoreceptors in the retina. And then that information gets transmitted and processed in the retina until it finally goes from the eye to the brain via the optic nerve axons or the axons of the retinal ganglion cells. So I am just going to share very briefly the final result of, of, of several years of work in the laboratory, um, which suggested actually in our system that we were studying, which was mouse, which obviously is very different from human, that this particular cell type, these cells that respond to light decrements, so meaning they're off cells, they respond most actually when there's a bright stimulus that then um, becomes much dimmer. Uh, this is in contrast to on cells. On cells respond to light increments or light stimuli in a much more robust fashion. And so what we found, the final take home story really is that these off ganglion cells turned out to be a very representative cell of a, of a cell type that was more vulnerable in glaucoma, meaning that here's the cell body here, and here is the axon um, that's eventually going to the optic nerve. And you have this large, what we call arbor um, or dendritic arbor, and it's shrunken in, in this model of glaucoma. Um, and you see those little blue dots here, those are the synapses or the connections. Those are also really lost um, in glaucoma. And what we found in contrary was that the on cells are more resilient in glaucoma. And so you can kind of think of it as the off cells might be like a canary in the coal mine. I first heard this sort of, um, I like this concept. This is, um, I first heard Dr. Andrew Huberman bring this up and actually I'm gonna talk very briefly about his work later on um, in this talk. And, um, but I think in opposition to these more vulnerable cells or this canary in the coal mine that's saying, hey, there's damage going on here. There's also the hardy coal miner, the coal miner who's very resilient. And I think that sort of is representative of the on system or the on cells. And so 
one of the things that we're really interested in is trying to figure out whether we can take this sort of dichotomy of on versus off cells, off again being more vulnerable, on being more resilient, and see if we can figure out ways in which we can improve glaucoma diagnostics, whether or not we can also understand, I mean, the, the um, million dollar question is, is why are some cells, what makes a cell more resilient? That would be really useful to know because if we can figure out, for example, like the underlying molecular mechanisms or genetic code that, that makes that happen, maybe that could lead to new treatments. And then also, um, can we use this knowledge to try to um, build better tools for glaucoma diagnosis? So I'm gonna briefly tell you about one such project that we have in the lab. So this is a picture of a medical student um, who has been working with me. And he's demonstrating, those of you who have uh, under glaucoma care and um, know how painful, I mean, it, I don't have a clinic day that goes by that a patient is not bitterly complaining to me about this test. I'm sure those of you who have taken it uh, probably agree. And, you know, this is, this is the way that we are evaluating your visual function. Remember, I told you our job as glaucoma specialists is to make sure that you don't lose visual function that's gonna affect your quality of life. And so this is our, this is our readout. And it, the problem is, is these tests, this visual field test is very subjective. Um, it's uncomfortable and it uses bulky, expensive equipment and is very difficult for patients to do. So um, what if we could you know, potentially build an objective way to measure visual function? And there is one such test already um, available, but it's not currently used. And part of that is because the, this um, ERG, what you're seeing in the upper picture here is an electrode that, you know, it's a part of a contact lens. It's not so comfortable. Again, it's a bulky piece of equipment. You have to um, dark adapt, you know, sit in a dark room um, for half an hour before taking the test. It's just, it's not a very practical test. Um, and um, so far it really has not become part of our normal clinical practice. And so what we um, did along with a, a team here at UCSF is try to use a handheld ERG. This is again, a picture of that same medical student where a handheld ERG is much more portable, it's small, and this, the electrode instead of being on the eye is actually just on the skin here. And so we wanted to try to incorporate this new technology with what I told you about what we found in the mouse. Um, of course, I forgot to say that um, the mouse, of course, is very different from us. And um, one area of active interest in the lab is also trying to figure out whether the same things that we are, have found in mouse models holds true in um, humans. And we have various ways of trying to do that. But this was sort of a proof of concept type of experiment where we wanted to know, since we knew that off cells were more um, susceptible and on were more resilient, we wondered whether or not we could use this new handheld electroretinogram device. Um, and I forgot to explain to you what an electroretinogram is, an ERG. And what that is, is it is essentially measuring the electrical activity to a light stimulus. So there's no, the light just flashes um, and in a certain pattern, but you, you don't, the patient does not have to respond to anything. There's no clicking of any button. All the patient has to do is continue to look um, straight ahead as the stimuli are presented. And then that sensor strip that I showed you on the last slide records the um, electrical activity. 
And so what we found was that um, we actually were able to distinguish between control patients and some of my glaucoma patients. The control here is in gray and the orange here is glaucoma patients. And what we found by looking at the higher frequency range, we actually saw bigger differences in the higher frequency range of this particular stimulus, meaning it was flashing more quickly. And that those higher frequencies are actually associated with more with the off pathway. So this was sort of a proof of concept demonstrating that, yes, it appears that in glaucoma patients, there is greater impact on the off pathway. And this is just a schematic suggesting, you know, as the off pathway is sort of degenerating, perhaps we can use this handheld ERG with um, this particular stimulus, which I didn't really go into, but not important for the purposes of this talk, to try to identify an objective measure that demonstrates greater off pathway susceptibility in glaucoma. The next project that I was going to talk about, but I think I'm going to skip it for now only because um, in the interest of time, I want to leave plenty of time for questions. But if people are interested in that, I can talk about it. Um, we're trying to also understand off visual field stimuli in a virtual reality headset that are stimulating more the off pathway versus the on pathway using different ways of manipulating the stimulus. But I'll move on now to talk about axon regeneration. So here I am, cannot even attempt to really tell you all the different research that has been going on. My lab is actually not really actively working on this area, but it's such an exciting, I mean, we, we are, we're starting to look into this area a little bit more, but this area has been just super active in the last five years. And it's very exciting. It's very, um, you know, when I came to UCSF 10 years ago, you know, I just thought that, you know, regenerating the optic nerve um, from the eye to the brain was really science fiction. I just didn't think that it was necessarily going to be uh, possible. It's a it's a tall order. You have to this the the axons here's you know the axons are injured right here. Someone asked a question about how does high pressure um, uh, lead to uh, damage to the optic nerve? And it's thought that um, you know Dr. Padmanabhan used that. Um, analogy of a colander mesh uh, for the trabecular meshwork where the fluid is draining. Well, at the optic nerve head, there's also kind of like a colander where all the axons, the bundles, they have to pass through these pores. And when there's high pressure, the axons get compressed and that causes damage to the optic nerve. And there's a bunch of different mechanisms that I touched upon briefly, I think, I can't remember now if I finished answering that question or whether or not we were going to answer this live, actually. Maybe I didn't finish typing out my answer, but we can talk about it in the discussion. But essentially, um, now the axons have degenerated and they're no longer connected to the brain. And so how do we get the axons to grow back towards the brain and get to the right location? Well, there's a ton of challenges. You know, this is not going to be an easy problem to solve. But because if you think about it, uh, there's just a lot of, it's a long distance for these axons to travel and they have to find the appropriate location in the brain to connect to. Again, we're talking here about synapses, you know, for example, here, this review is sort of bringing up, well, what happens if it connects or synapses onto the wrong target cell, you know, or if it goes to the wrong area or layer? So that's, it's, there's a lot of things that need to be addressed and there's this whole area is an active area of research. I mentioned Dr. Huberman earlier in my talk, and I just wanted to highlight this 
study, which was the first time that was demonstrated in mouse, but he is now also doing a study in patients where they use visual stimulation. And in this case, it's a high contrast visual stimulation for the mouse. They also did some genetic manipulations, meaning they turned on some genes and turned off others, um, and then showed that they were actually able to, after they did this very crude experiment where you crush the optic nerve actually um, with forceps, uh, that causes obviously all the axons to degenerate. Well, then what they did was they coupled those genetic manipulations with the high contrast visual stimulation and actually showed regrowth from the optic nerve to the brain. So I think this is, um, I just wanted to bring this up to say that this whole area is super active and super exciting. And there's a lot going on um, that I think can potentially have great promise for our patients. So the last thing I'll talk about is stem cells, because I think stem cells are also a very interesting um, area of research. And uh, when I first came to UCSF, I was actually involved in trying to generate retinal ganglion cells from stem cells. I don't do that anymore, but I am now collaborating with a group that does. And I wanted to tell you about um, sort of the, the way the field is sort of thinking about how we can use stem cells to address glaucoma. So stem cells, you know, you, there are many different sources of stem cells naturally occurring in the body, but you can also take non-stem cells for this example. And these are adult cells. These happen to just be skin fibroblasts, meaning we just take a little biopsy of your skin and then we put them in, in, in grow it in the lab and all these fibroblasts start growing. And then you actually can reprogram these fibroblasts so that they become pluripotent. That just means it's able to make all kinds of different cells, but we're basically making them back into stem cells and then using a various different number of factors and manipulations, we can then kind of recapitulate development and cause differentiation into whatever particular cell type. So in this case, of course, we're interested in differentiating these stem cells into retinal ganglion cells because these are the ones that are lost in glaucoma. Although that's not the only thing that's actively going on in uh, glaucoma research with regards to stem cells. I also just wanted to highlight this slide um, just to say that stem cells um, have a lot of different roles in all kinds of eye diseases, in the retina, in the cornea. I also wanted to just point out that ophthalmology is like on the forefront, not UCSF, but um, I mean, we I think we are also uh, doing all, but I wanted to bring up that the first time that stem cell derived cells, in this case, it was a type of retinal pigmented epithelium. What, you know, the eye was the first place, basically. What I'm trying to say is the eye was the first place that stem cell derived mature cells were transplanted in patients. It actually, the, that's like a first for all of medicine. And it happened in ophthalmology by a group in Japan. And so um, I just wanted to, um, let you all know that this area is, of course, also uh, very exciting. So the um, approaches to cure glaucoma with stem cells are not just about replacing the retinal ganglion cells, as I was talking about, but also there was a recent report where um, scientists were able to restore trabecular meshwork function. You know, the trabecular meshwork, of course, that Dr. Pamanabhan talked about um, starts not to function as well, and the eye pressure starts to increase. Well, this one group was able to use stem cell derived sort of trabecular meshwork cells and re restore function. And then also um, to 
um, restore retinal ganglion cell function. And that is actually what I wanted to briefly just kind of let you know what is going on still early on in the field. So this is one of my collaborators, Dr. Jason Meyer. He's at Indiana University. And his lab is really expert in making retinal ganglion cells. And they can essentially grow um, these retinal organoids and also grow these retinal ganglion cells so that they really kind of um, recapitulate what is going on in the human eye. It forms this beautifully layered structure. Kind of remember that Ramoni Cajal drawing I showed you at the beginning, how there were different layers of different cells and then the connections between um, uh, the cells were the layers where the, uh, or the synaptic layers. So you can kind of see how um, his lab is recapitulating that. And so um, we are embarking on a project to try to see if we can do transplantation experiments where we inject or transplant in various different surgical maneuvers these human-derived donor ganglion cells. And um, as I talked about in the first part of my talk, my lab is really interested in understanding how the retina wires and how it makes these connections and these synapses. And so that's part of uh, my job in this project. And, and the, what I wanted to point out with this slide is just to say how team science or team efforts are so critical to moving uh, the, the field forward. And so this is a collaboration among four different labs uh, the, the Meyer lab that I just showed you is making these retinal ganglion cells. Um, the Fortune lab at in um, Oregon um, is expert in a monkey model of glaucoma. And as I have alluded to earlier in this talk, mouse and human are very different, but monkey is much closer to us. And these, ex these experiments are ongoing um, in monkey. And then Ben Sivier's lab also in Oregon is going to be doing this fine detailed functional assessments, trying to understand whether or not the transplanted cells work. And my lab is again, interested in the connections and whether these transplanted cells can rewire within the diseased retina, diseased from glaucoma. So I'm gonna stop here. I hope I've left enough time, um, just highlighting these three different areas of active research and, I also really wanted to highlight um, the fact that research is an important enterprise that could not be done without all the people who contribute, people in my laboratory. The work uh, that I showed you primarily is work um, involved in this group right here. We were doing a virtual escape room here. That's a picture from that. And then also all the collaborators and mentors um, that I've had along the way, as well as um, various funding sources that um, without them, we wouldn't be able to do this kind of work. So thank you. There was one question about what is the reason for, what's the underlying mechanism for glaucoma? Uh, that's always a good question. Maybe we can start with that. The initiating event, I think most scientists and physicians agree, is that um, uh, is at the optic nerve head and it's the compression on the, those cables on the axons. And then there's a whole series of cascading events. Once you start compressing those axons, there's all this material like growth factors and healthy factors, things that keep the retinal ganglion cells alive that are transported along those cables, along the axons. And so that kind of transport all gets very slowed down um, and damaged. Um, other important things like mitochondria, which are the cell's energy source, that also slows down. And so that just starts this whole process in a cascading series of events 
where I think um, the support cells that are around the optic nerve head also start to um, come in and can either be trying to help things, try to help um, recovery and help your cells, help the neurons survive. But then sometimes also we, we wonder whether or not those cells might actually be causing further damage. There's oxidative stress that's going on um, and reactive oxygen species that are being released. Um, and I mean, there's basically like 20 different things that are more than 20 different things that are probably happening that um, then leads to the axon gradually sort of what we call die back. It kind of is degenerating. And then once you lose that cable and that, you know, all your retina could be functioning perfectly fine, but then the information can't get to the brain. We also have a couple of questions about how glaucomatous optic nerve changes are similar to other diseases such as myopia or uh, what is it, vitamin B deficiency or cobalamin C. Um, can you just talk about how optic atrophy or optic nerve changes in glaucoma could be compared and contrasted to other diseases? And do glaucoma treatments work for those also? I have like sort of two answers for this. The first, and I'll see whether Kathy and Sri agree with me. The first answer is that since glaucoma treatments are really focused on lowering the eye pressure, really, and we don't think that other inherited forms, for example, of optic nerve atrophy that are genetic in origin have anything to do with eye pressure. Like the short answer is probably no. But on the other hand, lowering pressure is generally a, um, there's all side effects from the medications and there's definitely um, treatment uh, issues, but it's not gonna cause further damage to your eye if you have optic nerve atrophy. And if there were any component, like sometimes it's confusing for your doctor to figure out, your ophthalmologist to figure out, is this all optic nerve atrophy from some underlying, uh, or is it an acquired optic nerve atrophy, which means it's not genetic, but it's not also not glaucoma. Sometimes it can be difficult to figure out. So there are situations where I feel like one could consider still um, lowering eye pressure because it is a modifiable or, or you know, risk factor. But you know, the, the first answer, which is essentially no, um, I think is probably also the, the more correct answer. The stem cells question uh, for that um, particular question, I think is relevant in the sense that, yeah, anything that we figure out about how to regrow the axons and transplant retinal ganglion cells, that theoretically would be helpful for other types of optic nerve atrophy. How about artificial intelligence to look at visual field capability? That's kind of a hot area of research, even in our department. <laughs> uh, Kathy, do you want to take that one? Uh, sure, I can start. And then um, Yvonne might want to talk about some of her research in that area too. Um, but, but there are a number of areas. Um, one is developing newer ways to test visual fields that incorporate AI, and then also to better analyze the um, results that we get from the visual field. And so, you know, machine learning, um, deep learning, these are all hot topics in, in trying to look at the patterns of um, visual field tests and see if we can create other predictive, um, you know, algorithms that can tell when a patient is progressing and try to detect that as early as possible. Um, so the, that's, I think those are kind of the two big areas that are um, very exciting. 
And um, I'll let Yvonne kind of talk about the, the visual feel kind of virtual AI work. Oh, I thought your answer was great. I mean, um, we're not really using AI per se, although um, I'll just briefly say that we are trying to develop a virtual reality-based visual field test um, that's portable. Actually, during COVID, because patients weren't coming in and I had some students working on those projects, we actually just shipped the devices to patients and trained them over Zoom. And they were able to take visual fields that really were quite congruent with the um, standard visual field. But we're still we're still working on that project and trying to, I don't want to imply at all that this virtual reality test is ready for prime time. Three, maybe I'll send this question your way. Uh, does a diagnosis of glaucoma require demonstrated loss of visual field, or can you make the diagnosis prior to that vision loss? Uh, how do you sort of go about hashing that out for the patient? So uh, a diagnosis of glaucoma uh, does not require a demonstrated loss on the visual field um, because um, you can certainly demonstrate early glaucoma um, which is essentially uh, glaucoma that exists prior to vision loss um, on the visual field. And that can be measured by either clinical exam or on the OCT, which is a little bit better at the visual field um, in ascertaining glaucoma loss um, when the optic nerve is still relatively redundant, um, when, you know, before you've lost enough to show a difference on the visual field. And so for patients who might have early glaucoma, uh, they may have a normal visual field but they may have a slightly suspicious area of the nerve that looks different from the other segments that may correspond to an area on the uh, OCT that looks um, a little thinner than its corresponding segments. Sometimes the OCT is measuring normal, um, but you can still make a diagnosis of glaucoma if you've noticed a, a trend or a change in those normal values over time. So it may be the case that, for example, the first time you saw uh, the patient, the OCT is measuring completely normal, the next time you see them six months or a year later, the OCT is still normal, but the, the amount of nerve that was lost in the interim is faster than you might expect for, the person's, for that patient's age. And then you sort of correlate that with their other clinical risk factors um, and, and see, if you can, um, see if you can make um, a, a, really, a reasonably compelling story for the diagnosis. Um, so you always have to have some evidence uh, of optic nerve head damage, of always have to have some evidence of optic nerve head loss but you don't always have to um, see the loss on the visual field. And in fact, we like to make the diagnosis before we see vision loss in the visual field. So we can preserve as much vision as possible. How can you reduce oxidative stress? Is there anything you can do to reduce oxidative stress to the nerve? Anything preventative that we can do, that patients can do to reduce, I guess, glaucomatous changes, glaucomatous impact? Why don't you all three take a little bit of the answer? Go okay. ahead. Okay. Okay. All right. So I, um, there are definite um, uh, modifications that I feel are not um, harmful to do, and and if anything, would be overall health health healthy. For, you know, overall healthy. Um, I think the issue is is that a lot of the data that we have about certain activities is not super well studied, but it's certainly been studied. So um, for example, yoga is something that I think generally people think is good for your health. And I, and I think it is too, but it has been demonstrated that, you know, any um, yoga poses that you might do in which the eyes might be lower than the heart, or even when a large amount of blood might be pooled, like 
um, pulled or heading towards um, the um, head will raise pressure. So for example, downward facing dog for sure will raise your pressure transiently. Um, and, the, and it will return back to normal soon after you resume an upright posture. And the question is, is, is that actually causing your glaucoma to worsen? And believe it or not, it's still sort of an ongoing sort of, I don't know if it's a debate, but it hasn't, it hasn't been definitively proven that eye pressure fluctuations drive the disease, but logically it makes sense that it probably would. And so um, I do tell patients that are, um, you know, if they, especially if they have advanced disease that staying upright, um, doing um, upright yoga poses would be good, but maybe avoid some of these other types of poses. Even for example, putting your legs up against the wall and lying flat on your back can increase eye pressure. A healthy diet with green leafy vegetables, there have been studies looking at dietary nitrates, that, that's always good, I think. Um, Kathy, I, I want to look at, look at three, do you have yeah. any more to add to those things? Um, yeah, I would say, you know, in very simple terms, like I, I generally tell my patients that um, while the evidence in this area is somewhat lacking, the, I would say the wealth of our experience suggests that the healthier patients are at baseline, um, the better they are uh, overall and in the long term with their glaucoma. I think we all have had the experience that um, very sick patients in general also tend to have um, harder to control glaucoma, though that's not a hard and fast rule. And so typically the things that we all know are good for our bodies um, are the things that I also recommend patients do to avoid smoking, to eat a healthy diet, maintain a healthy weight. Um, with specific respect to antioxidants, um, eating a very colorful salad every day uh, is not a bad way uh, to get in some good antioxidants. And this is um, the advice that uh, my mentors used to tell their patients um, when I was in training, uh, patients who had glaucoma and other eye diseases um, where oxidative stress is, is something of concern. Um, I, Yvonne, uh, Dr. O had mentioned that there was some benefit to exercise as well, and there is. Um, I learned from her actually that um, exercise has demonstrated a benefit to uh, disease progression, um, particularly at that exercise is sustained over time. And when you stop exercising, then you lose some of that benefit. And so if patients are not already moving, then I encourage them to start moving, um, except for their downward dog position. <laughs> <laughs> And some suggestions actually that if you aren't already moving and you start to be more active, you see the best, the most benefits. So it's just motivation to get off the couch and, and start moving. I, think I should stop moving and then start later. <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, there is a question. Maybe I'll, I'll direct this to you, Kathy. How do you treat a patient with myopia or even someone who's had prior LASIK differently in terms of how you manage their, their glaucoma? Or do you treat? Or do are they a different? Do you have different risk factors? Do you treat them differently? Yeah. So a history of LASIK means that your cornea is thinner than other people, and that is a risk factor in glaucoma that's been um, proven in clinical trials. And so when the cornea is thinner, we kind of think of having a thinner tire. So the pressure is actually likely higher than what we're measuring with some of our devices. Um, so we just have a higher suspicion for. Um, that the pressure could be higher. And then also being nearsighted means that your nerves can be stretched and, or and tilted and that can look like glaucoma. And that is also a risk factor. Um, so the main thing um, when 
we're not sure and we classify patients as having as being glaucoma suspects. It's just close follow-up. We may do more tests like visual field and OCT and more frequently to be able to detect if everything's stable or if there is actually a trend um, that's, uh, you know, we're seeing decrease um, in nerve tissue and, and visual field loss. And how about the patient who has concurrent retinal disease, especially someone who's had uh, laser treatment for their retinal disease? That also would decrease their visual field. How do you uh, do you do anything differently for them in terms of their glaucoma? And uh, there's also a question: Do you think stem cells might be helpful to those patients? It can be often really challenging to tell whether or not someone's um, when they have concurrent retinal disease, especially um, there are some forms of retinal disease or retinal treatments that end up giving a pattern on the visual field that can get confused, you know, one can get confused as to whether or not this is really glaucoma or whether or not this might be due to an underlying retinal disease. So it can be really, really challenging um, to distinguish those two. And the, the way I sort of err on that, uh, thinking about that is, if the patient is able to tolerate treatment, I will tend to err to be more aggressive in treating if I haven't been able to figure out whether or not they, um, how much of it is due to glaucoma and how much of it is due to retinal disease, just because I don't want to miss the opportunity to treat um, a treatable disease. Um, the other question was about stem cells. And I think that, and the question was about maybe changes or laser in the macula. Um, I do think, you know, I just showed one little tidbit about stem cells um, in glaucoma, but yes, there's a, even more research actually in using stem cells to treat retinal diseases. And that area has moved more quickly um, in some regards, although one does have to be careful. I do want to give one word of caution <laughs> to patients um, just because there are there have been reports in, in situations where patients have unfortunately lost vision due to um, stem cell treatments that were not done in a regulated um, clinical trial way. And it can be very confusing as a patient to figure out when something is being offered. But basically the general rule of thumb is if you have to pay to have this treatment, um, that's one sign that things are not quite um, quite right. And you do have to be wary, even when you look at you know websites such as clinicaltrials.gov, that doesn't always mean that the clinical trial, you would think that that would mean that the clinical trial is because of the GOV that it's sanctioned by the government, but it's not. So just be just be very careful and ask, you know, if you are ever thinking about um, anything for I or anything else like that, definitely seek um, some other opinions before you before you do um, those kind of treatments. Uh, Dr. Padmanabhan, how do you go about choosing a good target eye pressure to aim for? And do you do it differently in normal pressure glaucoma versus other types of glaucoma? That's a great question. Uh, I would say I do it a little bit differently uh, based on the type of glaucoma or the, or the clinical scenario that I'm dealing with. Um, much of the way that glaucoma specialists decide on the initial uh, target treatment is based on the large clinical trials that have um, set target pressures or established a, or a particular percentage um, from the maximum pressure um, in the course of that trial that, and then demonstrated uh, slowing of disease progression um, when that pressure is achieved. 
And so, for example, um, for patients who have elevated eye pressures but no other signs of glaucoma, um, the landmark clinical trial from about 15 years ago demonstrated a, you know, I believe it was a 25% reduction of the IOP um, as an initial goal. For normal tension uh, glaucoma, 30% is the typical initial target. Um, and these are just initial targets. Um, it's not a bad place to start, but you can never really rest on your laurels if you've met that initial target. Um, because the treatment isn't about what the number is. The treatment is about how the patient is seeing and uh, how the disease is progressing. The ideal pressure is whatever is required to prevent the disease from progressing noticeably from year to year. Um, ideally, many, many years pass before you notice disease progression. Um, at this point, it's not really um, possible to completely halt the disease. Uh, typically, there's a slow march um, that you'll see from, from year to year, or I should say over the course of many years, but the ideal is to get the disease moving so slowly that the patient will hardly be affected by it in the course of their lifetime. And so that initial target is informed by clinical trials, but then the subsequent targets are always constantly reevaluated um, and reassessed and readjusted um, for each individual patient. Um, and then the last question in the QA section, I'll direct to Dr. Sun. When you're doing glaucoma surgery along with cataract surgery, is there a particular lens implant you is your go-to implant? Or I'll expand upon that a little. Are there any particular things you specifically choose to do in that patient with glaucoma and cataract surgery combined? or cataract surgery yeah. in the glaucoma patients? Sorry. Yeah, that, that's a good question. So um, usually when we think about the intraocular lens implant, um, we kind of separate that from, from glaucoma in the sense that we you know, would ask the patient, just like if they're having cataract surgery, if they want a distant or near target. Um, and so that's determined separately. The I would say that the one type of lens that we tend to avoid for glaucoma if we're doing glaucoma surgery at the same time are the multifocal lenses, which um, allow you to see both near and far and kind of all the range in between. Um, for those specialty lenses, you want to get the best vision possible. And usually if you have glaucoma, that means that you have some sort of visual um, field impairment or um, visual impairment. So you're not going to be able to get the best possible visions, you know, getting you to 2020. Um, and so generally when we're doing glaucoma surgery, we recommend our standard monofocal implants, which have one focal plane because patients will get better quality of vision when we combine it with glaucoma, since it is a longer recovery period and there can be some more complications after surgery too. Well, I want to thank all three of you. What a great discussion and a wonderful introduction to glaucoma, its treatment and research that's emerging on the horizon. I think this has been a great session and we look forward to learning more in the future. Thank you all so much.